0: Turn in God's word this morning to Isaiah, the ninth chapter. As I mentioned uh, last Lord's Day, we'll be in the book of Isaiah, the ninth chapter throughout uh, the Advent season, uh, taking us through uh, Sunday after our celebration of Christ's coming. Isaiah chapter nine, last Lord's Day, we spent time dealing with the background uh, of the ninth chapter that we have in 7 and 8. The prophecy of a coming invasion and uh, yet uh, the great promise of grace that is found in that first verse. This morning we'll read beginning at 9 verse 1 and read through the first phrase that is found in verse 6. Let's hear then God breathed out word to us today. But, there shall be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Let's bow again in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, as Isaiah lived in such perilous times for believers, those who love the Lord. What a message you gave him for your people. They didn't always understand it, but they believed. And Lord, may we also, as we seem to live in times that are perilous for believers, we hear your word, Lord. May it resonate in our hearts. May we joy of the message and the promises that you have given. Be with Pastor Bob as he relates these and he digs deep into them that we may understand all that your promises give us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at four things from uh, these verses this morning. First of all, the contrast that comes before us here, the contrast. Secondly, the blessings that are listed. Thirdly, the causes for those blessings. And then fourthly, the fulfillment. Contrast blessings, causes, fulfillment. So we begin in verses 1 and 2. With this contrast, particularly it, it comes out in verse 1 as, as this change. but there is no more gloom. It, it's pointed to us more as the, the ultimate change that is going to take place for these tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun in the far north that have been just hammered and hammered time and time again by invading forces. But God is saying there's coming a day when uh, no darkness, but you'll be... Dwelling in light. And then in verse 2 comes out even more this contrast, the contrast between darkness and light. And first of all, just note that that's a physical contrast, right? As we read God's word, it's not like he's using some illustration here that, that isn't true in the physical realm. There is a distinction. A great distinction between light and darkness. And I I used to be a little troubled by day one of creation. right? Because on day one, we often say God separates the light from the darkness. But in reality, that isn't what's happening on day one. Because the darkness of day one is not really the darkness... Of verse 1 and 2. Because the darkness of day 1 includes a lesser light. The darkness of day 1 includes the stars. And yes, there is a contrast between the sun shining and the moon shining. But there is is not an absoluteness to that darkness. If we were to be in the upper peninsula, away from all of the street lighting and city lighting, on a night of which the moon is out, the stars are out, there are times in which you would probably say, I can't even really tell it's dark. A blanket of snow reflecting as well. That's not absolute darkness, is it? So when God intervenes into this world on day one, he intervenes because the contrast is in verses one and two, there is absolute darkness. There is nothing. God comes into this world on day one and creates light. A greater light to govern the day. A lesser light to govern the night. But that which is spoken of here is an absolute darkness. The absence of all light. See, that's the contrast we have to understand that is coming here. It's not the the darkness of night. Because that still has light attached to it. This is the darkness that has no light. This this is the darkness when you're on the cave tour. Somewhere in the United States. Whether out west, mammoth caves or one of the other ones that you perhaps have gone into. And you're in the bottom of that cave. And the guy hits the switch. And all of a sudden, there is nothing. The absoluteness. Of darkness. And then even experts say. Well that's not really fully yet. I'm not sure how you get darker than that. But I suppose it's possible. That's the contrast. The people who walk in darkness. An absolute darkness. Have seen a great light. That's the physical contrast that God is placing before us here. And we need to understand that it was absolute darkness. Because not only is this a physical contrast, it's a spiritual contrast. That's really the point, right? Isaiah is is not given here by the Spirit some lesson on science for us, although it applies to science. He's given to us a spiritual lesson. And he's teaching us of the absolute darkness. That man is in because of sin. That absolute darkness under the curse. That absolute darkness of despair. That absolute darkness where there is no hope. Where there is no comfort. Where there is no assurance. Darkness. The people who dwell in darkness. The people who are clothed in sin sin that is so covering each one of us that we cannot see. See, elsewhere left with, thinking, well, if the darkness is like the night, that's not so bad. I'm not that bad a person then. I'm not so bad. Look, there's even light in the darkness. I'm okay, I'll be alright, I, I really don't need the light, I got, I got the moon, I got stars, I, I don't really need light, I'm okay, I'll get along. And we have to understand that the spiritual way of understanding this is the physical way of understanding the absolute darkness and light, a contrast. Not partial, not gray, not somewhere in between. Because the spiritual picture, the spiritual picture is of our sin. But then there's also the light. The light that represents blessings and hope. The light that we read of in the Gospel of John I am the light of the world. To exemplify that, when, when Jesus utters that statement in John chapter 9, he heals a man who is blind. A man who cannot see. He can't even see. See, when you and I, cl- and I've used this illustration before, but do it again. Just close your eyes. When you and I close our eyes, that's not what it means to be blind. Because you see, you, you and I see various degrees of light yet there there is even though my eyes are closed i'm still seeing light cuz when i put my hands now over my eyes it got darker blindness is the is being incapable of even seeing that light when your eyes are closed because you see when my eyes are closed my eyes are actually still seeing i'm not blind jesus to illustrate the contrast that he is the light of the world, takes a man who is blind, allows him to see, Jesus saying, that is who I am spiritually. In the blindness of your sin, I am the one who provides light. The light shined into the darkness. John chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus has come, as we're going to sing at the end of the, The the service, the light of the world. And you see, if we don't understand the absoluteness of this, then we're going to say, I don't need Jesus. Because you see, I'm not really blind. There's other means by which I can come to the light other than Jesus. So Isaiah, through the Spirit, is setting us up here to see not only this physical reality, but the spiritual reality. And of course, that takes us into Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to make a statement. Some of you are going to be blown out of the water by this statement. okay? Because because it has other references in the theological world. I'm a two-kingdom person. I'm a two-kingdom person. I believe there are two kingdoms in this world. And the two kingdoms are these. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. That's it. That's what the Bible describes for us as two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of light represented in Jesus Christ. There is a kingdom of absolute darkness represented by Satan himself. And we, Ephesians chapter 5, who were in darkness, have been called out of that darkness into Christ, so that we might walk, not in the darkness, but that we might walk in light and live a life of light to this world. To demonstrate to this world that we live in the light, not in the darkness. So we always have to think about the contrast. Am I living in contrast to the world? Is the way I speak in contrast to the way in which the world often speaks? Do I love my enemies? Because that's not what the world does. What kind of husband, what kind of father am I? What kind of mother, what kind of wife am I? In contrast to that which we see in the world. What kind of parent and what kind of child am I compared to that which I see in the world? What about what I spend my time with? What about the video games I play? What about my attitude towards life? What about what I do with the Lord's Day? What about the words that I speak with my mouth? Am, am I living in contrast to the kingdom of darkness? Am I living in the kingdom of light? All of that is packed here into verses 1 and 2. Not only the physical, but the spiritual as well. But now note what Isaiah is going to do. He's saying... That these people, particularly those of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, those who are always overrun by invading forces, those who have lived in the darkness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, what happens as a result? Well, that's where we pick it up then at verse 3. Because light has shone upon them now, there are two blessings that Isaiah presents to us. The first blessing is this, growth, blessed growth. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. See, think about what invasion after invasion after invasion has done to this section of Galilee. It decimates it. It decimates it in terms of its population, in terms of its territory. This is the run over again and again and again part of the land. This is the chariots churning up. This is making that which is fruitful land unfruitful. This is stripping the forest bare. But it's also decimating the population. What is the blessing of the light shining upon this? A physical, numerical growth. God is going to bless them. Because the light is shining upon them. Because the light has come. You have multiplied the nation. This is what Isaiah is seeing in prophecy. This is what he's looking forward to. Yes, you're going to be overrun again. But, but, but God is about to do a great work. And even though you're decimated now. God is going to shine this great light upon you and the nation, your territory, your population is going to expand immensely. See, this is God's promise to Abraham. That all the nations will be blessed through you. All those people grew. Through that which is going to happen here in Galilee. Through that which is going to take place in this decimated place. God is going to bless the world through this second blessing. You have increased its joy. Now look at the words back in verse 1. Gloom. Anguish, verse 2, darkness, verse 2, deep darkness. What is God going to do? God is going to shine the light, the great light. What's going to happen? Well, rather than gloom and despair and agony, it's joy, increased joy. How great our joy, 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 joy. This is what God is going to do. And and the Spirit now leads Isaiah to say, "Let, Let me give you two comparisons, is what it's like. Number one, the joy is going to be like the harvesters who bring in the crops at the end of a long, hard season of planting, of weeding, of nurturing, of reaping. But here's the increase. Oh, the joy. We, we sort of try to mimic that in our country. We, we sort of try to bring that in, right, with thanksgiving. But because so few of us have, have much of an agricultural bent or background, yeah, we, can't, we kind of miss it a little bit, right? In Israel, which is predominantly an agricultural community, the idea of all that hard work, labor. And then to see the crop and to have it brought in that no rains have destroyed it. No hail has come and swept over it. No fires have gone through. No invading forces have come and just taken it. It's ours. Oh, we're so blessed The joy. Now sometimes perhaps you've, you've read books about sheep shearing time and the celebration afterwards. Some of which isn't so good. But it's exemplifying of the joy of the work done, of the harvest brought in. That's, that's the kind of joy. The joy of having gone through a very hard and difficult time, but then to see the blessings of those crops stored and gathered, oh, the joy. The second is the illustration of warfare. The illustration of the battles that are fought, the battles that are waged, the hard and difficult, methodical moving forward, the getting ready, knowing that your life is on the line, knowing that you have to go out and fight the enemy. But then, the battle is done. And the victory has been gained. And there you are with the rest of the army. What are you doing? You're going through all of the enemy's stuff. All of the spoils. And you're sitting there going, you know, it really was worth to fight this battle. Look, look, I'm I'm better off now than I ever was. I have all this. And, And just the joy. I've made it. I survived. I'm alive. I didn't die in the battle. I get to go home to my family and I get to bring all of this stuff with me back. There's that joy of a victory won, of a battle engaged in. See, it's not just given. It's not just that, oh, here's here's the stuff. We all know what happens when all we do is just give and give and give and give and give our kids stuff. And they don't do anything to earn it. Do they appreciate all that we give? In fact, we've probably said a time or two, you don't appreciate anything I do for you. Well, maybe it's because we didn't make them work for it. In these passages, in these examples, it's interesting. The light shines, but they're still out there working and laboring in the fields. The light shines, God's blessings is is there. The crop was secured by God's blessing. The victory was won by God's blessing, but they still had a fight. And part of that is, is the enjoyment of that which we have done. Joy, 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 joy. That's the picture of the blessing. He's trying to give these people pictures in their minds of what this joy is like. But of course, the joy that is spoken of here far surpasses the joy of a harvest or the joy of a war won. Because it represents spiritual blessings. Thirdly then, are the causes... Why is there this joy? Why is there this celebration? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Is on the day of Midian. That's a reference, by the way, back to Joshua. That's a reference back to to the 300 in Joshua's army. That that simply blow their trumpets, crash their pitchers, and the army of Midian is thrown into great confusion. It's a miraculous thing. It's a God thing. They had to be obedient. They had to do what God commanded them to do, but it is God's blessing. What are the causes? That bondage is broken. Now think of the message, right? We're, we're talking about those, those tribes up in the north. We're talking about Galilee and that surrounding area who always seem to, to, to be under either the Syrians or the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. And it goes on and on. The Greeks, the Romans, they're, they're always the first to get it. They're the ones who have no means of fighting back, as it were. They're they're always in this bondage. They're always paying the taxes. They're always the one whose property is being confiscated. They're always the one who do all the hard work only to see it go over to some oppressor. They are under a bondage. And yet the reason for this joy, this kind of joy at the celebration of a harvest, this kind of joy that comes in dividing the spoils, is a joy because that bondage is broken. Just like Egypt, when that bondage is broken, and they come out and Miriam and the women are singing a song of praise to the Lord for his deliverance. Isaiah is saying, that's what's coming. There's coming a day when God will shine his light, and our bondage is going to be broken. Not just the physical." Now the spiritual, the power of sin, death, and the grave are going to be broken. That's what Paul's dealing with in the book of Romans. He's telling us how the power of sin has been broken by the great light. In, in, In 1 Corinthians 15, he's telling us how the bondage of death and the grave is broken by the great light, by the one who said, I am the light of the world. But not only, not only is bondage broken, the battle is won. It's not like the bondage is broken. Yeah, wait, you know, the people living up in Zebulun would probably go, okay, yeah, wait 10 years and we'll be under bondage again. Yep, we're going to get it again. Yep, we're going to get it again. It's going to happen again. Yep, here we go down this pathway again. No. No. The point of the every boot of the tramping warrior and every garment rolled in blood, what's going to happen? Well, we just pass it on and, and somebody else will eventually use it. No, we're going to burn it. Why? Because the battle is won. The great light is going to come. And this great light that God is going to shine upon Zebulun, Naphtali, the region of Galilee, that great light is going to bring about a victory, a victory that is final, a victory that is complete, a victory that is thorough. That's the book of Revelation. That's what John is telling to the church of his day. It's what he's telling to the church Today, the great light has come, and that light has won the battle. Finally, totally, it is over. Christ is victor. Not, not going to be. See, we don't live that way. We live like there's some sort of tension yet. We live like somehow or another maybe the kingdom of darkness is going to take over the kingdom of light again. Think of how negative we are. And i include myself. Think of how negative we are about that which is going on in the world today. We've forgotten the one who has won the battle. We don't live in a kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness is never, never going to take over the kingdom of light. Never. Because the kingdom of light has vanquished the kingdom of darkness. The book of Revelation is not about that which will be. It's about that which has already happened. Christ has won. Hallelujah. How great our joy. How great our joy. When is this all fulfilled? Well, this is no mystery, is it? Wait, when is this all gonna happen? When is this all gonna take place? If we're living in Isaiah's day, Isaiah, when when will this be? For unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given. When? When Christ comes. Do you mean when he comes again? No. When he came. How do you know that? Keep your finger here. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew. Gospel, chapter 4. Sometimes I am so grateful for our Bible studies because they help sermon preparation a lot. Matthew, chapter 4. Go to verse 12. See the tie-in. Matthew, chapter 4, 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. We're talking about Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What's the light? Christ, Jesus. What's the light? And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When's the fulfillment? A son. Last Sunday evening, Genesis 3:15, A son, a savior, Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is directing Matthew to this very passage in Isaiah and saying, when Christ came to Galilee, to Naphtali, to Zebulun, and preaches the gospel. This is the great light. This is the message of hope found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the O come O come Emmanuel. This is the hope. And note, That the Son is given. The Son is not earned. The Son is not deserved. The Son is not merited. The Son is not a reward. This gift of God, this gift of grace, this gift of blessing, this gift of light. This gift of hope, this gift of assurance, this gift of comfort, this gift of joy is given. It's by grace. We didn't deserve a Savior to be born in Bethlehem. We didn't earn it. We were in darkness. God, in His grace, in His infinite, indescribable grace, has given a Son. How many Christmases have you celebrated in your life? Are you tired of it? Are you sick of it? You're going, oh, here we go again. I hope not. I hope every year that we center our thoughts more upon this gift, a son who is given. You see even more, even more, the grace, that undeserved grace of God In shining upon this world the great light of his son, Jesus Christ. Celebrate grace in the person of Christ. But you can't celebrate if you don't know him. Come to Bethlehem and see. savior, your king the great light and God's people say amen